Okay, you can take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter. It looks like I have one more message after this message in 1 Peter. And um, I think I'm craving a little bit of the Old Testament before I get back into 2 Peter. So I think I may do the Ten Commandments And uh, after I get done with this. 1 Peter chapter 5, and let's read from verse 6. Follow me as I read from verse 6 to verse number 11. It says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we come before your word, we know, Lord, that, Father, we know that Christ is the one who gives us not only entryway into your presence, because he is the door, but by his spirit, the word of God is illuminated to us. It's brought to life for us as your children. And I pray, Lord, as that happens, I pray that we would give our full attention to it. So, Lord, we would not be ignorant of the truths found in the word of God, but we would be very aware of them. And to the point where we are actually putting them into practice. And especially, Lord, this one that we are looking at and have been looking at, of that of resisting the enemy. And, Lord, especially in times of trouble, suffering, times of uh, trials, that those are the times that he may come against us with his force. I pray, Lord, we would be ready to resist him at that day. And, Lord, as we do, we know we don't come in our own strength. We come in the strength of our Lord, as we put on the whole armor of God, put on Christ, that we'd be able to stand up against him. And as we do that, he does flee from us. He will. But I know he'll be back. So, Lord, continue to allow us to grow in the strength of the truth of Scripture. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I've been uh, preaching on this subject, of course, we have been looking at the subject of... uh, the discipline of the Christian, especially in the realm of suffering. Peter has dealt with three major subjects in the epistle of 1 Peter, and that has been salvation, secondly, submission, and then thirdly, suffering. Now, suffering often brings up the question, why? Why am I going through trial and tribulation? Well, that is is not always answered the way we want it to be answered. There was a a man in a prisoner 
camp during World War II, Auschwitz. His name was Primo Levi. During World War II, he described a time when, huddled in his barracks and parched with thirst, he reached through the window for an icicle to provide some moisture for his mouth. But before he could crack it to his lips, a guard snatched the icicle away and shoved him back from the window. Shocked by such unkindness, Levi asked the guard why. And the guard responded, here there is no why. You don't even have the right to ask the question here. That's, that's probably the height of cruelty. But that is how life seems sometimes. It feels as if we go through difficult times, suffering times, with no reasonable answer as to why. It was Carl Sandberg who wrote the shortest poem in English literature. And here's the poem. Born, period, troubled, period, died, period. That's a pretty low view of life, isn't it? But nonetheless, there's some truth to it because there is mystery connected to suffering that one may never be able to explain. We need to be reminded that God's power and wisdom is infinitely beyond ours so that the solution to suffering and the doubts it raises is not found in the arguments. It's not found in our questions as to why. It is actually found in learning to rest and trust in God's character and power even when we do not get the answers, even when suffering remains mysterious, overwhelming, and when the circumstances defy our understanding. So holding on to our confidence in the reality of the power, the presence, and the promises of God can really lift our experiences of suffering and hardship to a place that nothing else can. No other answer could adequately bring us there when we just simply trust God because of his faithfulness, because of his character, because of who he is in Scripture. So God, remember, is fully aware of our challenges that we face. He allows them to come into our life for many purposes. In Christ, God is touched with the feelings of our infirmity, it says in Hebrews 4.15. The trustworthiness of God is one of the lessons learned best in the crucible of suffering. The trustworthiness of God is one of the lessons learned best in the crucible of suffering. See, in other words, can we just simply trust God without getting an answer to the question why? Even though God sometimes gives it, but he doesn't always give it. An ex- explanation of this last area of suffering in the epistle of 1 Peter, he gave three exhortations, an exhortation for humility, an exhortation for 
vigilance, and then exhortation for resistance. And that's what we've been looking at. And so the, one of the main passages there in 1 Peter 5, 9, but resist him firm in your faith. Now, why is there a call to resist the enemy and hold one's ground? Well, the present, uh, in the present context, in this, in this passage, it refers to the activity of the devil in trying to destroy believers, to, uh, in particular, their faith, to lead them away from God, to lead them into even, even into apostasy, and even to deny faith in Jesus Christ. See, the, our enemy is walking up and down the earth to spy out the weakness of God's servants. He, he was looking for the weak, the careless, the uh, desire and passion-driven, the world-influenced uh, believer. So if one is to resist the enemy, they must be humble under the mighty hand of God. They must be balanced in their mind as they're growing in Scripture and they must know something about their personal enemy and the spiritual battle that you actually enter into when you become believers. So we have learned over the past weeks to answer the question on how are Christians to resist. Well, we have considered seven ways Christians are to resist the enemy. And of course, I started out with five and now I'll end with eight, actually, which will be today. And, of course, the first one I mentioned is to resist the adversary in the faith. Now, let me just spend some time a little bit here again on this one, because I, as I mentioned, the reason why most of the translations record your faith instead when it's literally in the Greek, the faith, is because the body of truth once delivered to the saints, will not help you stand firm unless it resides in you, unless you take ownership of it, unless you understand it, unless you practice it. So a dusty Bible sitting on your table will not help you against the enemy unless the body of truth resides in you. And that's the point of having a transformed mind. It's in my mind, the truth of the word of God, the mind of Christ is being developed in believers so I can stand firm against the lies that are going to come against me and tempt me to go the other way. Hollywood holds up crosses and holds up the Bible in their movies to ward off evil spirits and demons. My friends, this is nothing but foolishness. Remember, you have a personal enemy who is against you, who accuses you, an enemy with a dubious and a dangerous character, but an enemy who is nowhere comes near the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, that greater he who is in you than he who is in the world. So it doesn't say get your enemy to laugh at you. It doesn't even say to rebuke him or cast him out In three places, it says to resist him, firm in your faith, firm in the faith, that Christians are to resist the enemy by standing in the body of doctrine and beliefs that have been delivered to the church so those beliefs become your beliefs and you would develop strong convictions and have a, which will bring you to a continual loving trust in God and in Christ. 
it was Martin Lloyd-Jones in his large tome on Ephesians uh, where he said in volume 6, the devil often changes his mind and method and we ought to be aware when he does. And he said this, sometimes he comes to you opposing you violently and condemning you. The next moment he will come flattering you. Sometimes he will inflame your passions to drive you into sin. The next time he'll come in a most subtle and enticing manner and he will achieve the same end before you know anything has happened. Sometimes he will come and club you over the head in order to make you to do what he wants. The next time he will employ the most sweet reasonableness. Sometimes he will attack scripture. The next time he'll be quoting scripture. One minute he tells us we are not good enough to be Christians. Another time he tells us we are so good that we do not even need the death of Christ in order to, be, in order to save us. One moment he will come to the Christian and say, don't overdo yourself. Look after your health. Look after your interest. You do what you want to do. Don't worry about all this Bible stuff. The next moment he'll fill you, us up with carnal zeal and make us so busy that we ruin our health or perhaps don't do, don't even have time to read at all. And so we lose our grip on the truth, and we don't know where we are. One moment he comes and fills us with doubts about the truth and about the faith. The next moment he drives us to such extremes, leaving us terribly unbalanced. One moment he persuades us to take lax and be at ease. The next moment he drives us to such a legalistic position, we become afraid to move because we are bound by law. See, the devil, he said, tempts to both extremes. Can we identify when he's doing that, even in our own midst? See, the enemy attacks the truth. He attacks the truth by spinning his own philosophies, philosophies that can at any really can be any it can be any knowledge that humans use to explain or articulate ideas and views satan often with great subtlety injects his philosophy into the cesspool of cultural thought the devil twists and contorts the truth out of its divine pattern as some have said that a well-fabricated well lie contains 99% truth. So how are you going to know when you're being lied to? In other words, there is no other defense to repel this particular attack, attack against you except to take up and wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, it is the Holy Spirit that is the author of the truth. So if you get to know the Word of God, you will be able to detect the lies. All religious systems, philosophies, and worldviews have been fooled around with by the devil. The implication then is all religious systems, philosophies, and worldviews fall under the power of the evil one. Therefore, it is... They are riddled with falsehoods. 
In other words, lies masquerading as truth. And sometimes, as I've, I've said, he, he can make truth, uh, a lie sound more true than truth itself. So you'll begin to slip. If you are in doubt of his love, the love of Christ toward you, and if you are not established and convinced that he has accomplished eternal salvation for you, if you're going to resist him, you must guard against slipping and falling in that way. So truth, and to resist him in the truth, is vital uh, for standing against the enemy. Of course, the second one was to resist the adversary by discerning your strengths and weaknesses and tendencies towards sin, and then fighting against them with the word of God. A third would be that of to resist the antagonist by maintaining a sanctified imagination. The fourth would be to resist the adversary by putting off sin and putting on righteousness. And of course, the fifth, sixth, and seventh would be the believer is to resist the devil by putting on Christ, by warfare praying, and also by prayer and fasting, which I mentioned last week. Today, we are going to look at the last one that I'm going to mention. The eighth way the believer is to resist the devil is by believing in and holding to the promises of God. Now, if you notice in this passage of Scripture, actually there is one promise with four parts, or we can say there's actually four promises. Maybe there's more than that in this passage of Scripture. But promises are very important, especially during suffering and trials. Your success in spiritual battle will depend on your grasp of the promises that God gives us in the Word of God and faith to trust completely in the one who makes the promise. So really, what is important about a promise? The important thing about a promise is not the promise itself, but the one who makes it, right? Because the one who makes it has to keep it. And if a person doesn't keep their word when they promise things, what do you say to yourself? You, you just write them off, right? You write, oh, I heard that before. You, that promise, I heard that promise so many times. And the, in other words, the person's not believed. But when God makes a promise, I guarantee it, he will accomplish that promise. Matter of fact, the whole Bible attributes the promises of God as being accomplished historically. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus Christ would come and die on the cross, and that promise was kept, literally kept. And so the Lord is going to keep his promises, but that's one area Satan is really going to attack. He's going to attack the promises of God by establishing a good amount of doubt against that promise. Maybe it may be where is, like it says in Second Peter, where's the coming of Christ? Things are the same from the beginning of time. Of course, they, they forget the worldwide flood and all the things that changed from then. They, they forget history, and, and we're divorced from history today, not only from biblical history, but from our own history. In the United States, we're being divorced from all of it, and we're repeating what history has already 
said what happened. And it becomes a vicious, vicious cycle. So in saying that, there are three things that are in play when a Christian is expressing biblical faith. The first thing is this, faith is, is, uh, is, is expressed, it really expresses the idea of God's character. Faith always points to the character of God, that he is truthful, that he is unchanging, that he is all-powerful, that he is ever-present, and the God who is able and willing. Also, it points to faith expresses the idea of belief in God's power. God's got to be able to pull off what he promises. If he doesn't have the power to do that, then he cannot accomplish the promise. So we have to believe in God's power. But also, that brings us to this third one, is that faith is expressed in the idea of God's promises. Those promises, of course, for the Christian, then faith is believing that the promises of God are true simply because he says they are true. And that is based on his character. Because he is a God, Titus chapter 1, who cannot lie to us. God can't do some things. He cannot lie to us. So he has to tell us the truth all the time. And so the truth can be very revealing and very painful at times. But if you notice back in verse number 9 of chapter 5, it says there we are to resist him firm in your faith. It becomes vitally important if the Christian is to understand how they are to resist and stand their ground against the enemy. The answer, it answers the question, what does all this resisting and standing your ground actually mean? Well, the Christian, Christians are to stand their ground firm in your faith, the faith. And so we are to stand until we become solid, until we become strong, until we become like an impenetrable wall that cannot be broken into. Now, there are some things in our text that will aid in our standing firm. Look at verse number 9. It says this. It says, resist him firming your truth, knowing, or we were to know something, that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, it's interesting how that's written. Because it's saying there, it's not simply saying that your brethren are going through suffering somewhere else in the world. It's saying that they're going through it and they're accomplishing something. What are they accomplishing? They're accomplishing standing firm in God's truth. That's what they're accomplishing. And so it's, it's in a sense, an encouragement to us that knowing that, listen, what I'm going through is not any different than what my brethren are going through somewhere else else in the world. I'm going through the same thing, and they know that I'm going through the same thing, and so as I see them go through it and hear experiences about what they go through, I can stand strong also. Some of the most motivating stories about continuing on the faith are people who were persecuted in the faith and just kept going and saw the blessings of God in their life. Sometimes their life was taken, but their life was taken in a way where they gave God all the glory, and they trusted God. If Lord, if this it's time for me to leave this earth, you have that in your power too. Let your name be glorified. And God took them because they knew death wasn't the end. Death was a doorway into the presence of God. That was the promise too, that when I die, 
I don't die and go to the grave like an animal and decay there. I go into the presence of God. My body decays and goes to the ground, but my spirit goes into the presence of God awaiting a resurrection of a new body. That's the hope and the promises that God gives us. I have to believe that. I have to believe that. You have to believe that because that is true because it's true because who said it? God said it. And so that what's, that's what makes it true. And so that because of the fall of the human race through its sin, suffering is a common experience to all people. And while we experience suffering in different degrees and in different forms, suffering is a universal human experience. You can go anywhere in the world, and that's not, it's not only for the believers, anywhere in the world in humanity, there's, you're going to find suffering. Suffering that we can't even explain sometimes. But Christians are to know something very well here, that our brothers and sisters in Christ have the same experience all over the world. Suffering Christians are to know something very personal, that they are not alone in their suffering, even with other believers. All Christians have the same burden to bear. While we go through this world, it's not easy to live. You know that, right? Life is not, you know, it's not a bowl of cherries. It's not. There are difficulties, and, and we all have to go through them, and all of us have different things we go through. But nonetheless, all these things can strengthen our faith. So they are experiencing the same kind of sufferings in the same ways we are. There is something comforting to know that you're not alone in your suffering with other brothers and sisters all over the world learning the same sort of things by suffering for the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's one thing, all right? The encouragement to stand strong is that you stand strong on your ground that you're not alone. Secondly, in verse number 10, that you stand your ground knowing suffering is temporal and salvation is eternal. Look what it says in verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while... The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. In that passage, we see several things. That suffering is going to be a temporal thing. And even if it's just temporal for this life, we know the next life, that when we are in the presence of God, there'll be no more suffering. The suffering will be done with. There'll be no crying, no tears like Revelation tells us. There'll be no death. The curse will be gone. See, that's the promise that we hold on to, too. So the suffering, though, God is promising will be short. Why? Because the God of all grace who called you, where does he call you? He called you to his his eternal glory. So here is a contrast being made between the promise in this verse and the present state of believers, that of one of being suffering. So it is important for the Christian to know that not only the temporary nature of suffering, but the fact that deliverance is near at hand. After you have suffered, in other words, it won't be long. You can say it like that. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, God is the subject of the sentence. It says the God of all grace, every kind of grace. That is the God who is all grace, all kindness, all mercy, all goodwill, all blessing. 
It's that God. It's the God who created the heaven and the earth. It's the God who, Father, who sent Jesus Christ. It's our Lord Jesus Christ, which means the God whose gifts are sufficient for every need and every situation. I like the passage of Scripture in James 1.17 where it says, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. See, the God of all grace may be rendered the God who in all things is good and kind and shows his love for us without holding back. Now, every single believer in Christ Jesus can claim that verse, can claim that, that God is only, only going to give me good things. He's only going to give you what is good because we don't know what is good. We usually choose the things that are not good for us. So grace means that God is giving you what you do not deserve. His forgiveness based alone on Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. That grace is that which God does for mankind through his Son, which mankind cannot earn, does not deserve, cannot merit. And when we are overwhelmed with God's undeserved grace and goodness, it humbles us, and it makes us immensely grateful to God for forgiving us so much that we should deserve the penalty of sin, which is the eternal wrath of God in hell, but he rescued us from that. Now, Satan can change, can't change the character of God, but he sure can try to get you to think about God incorrectly. That's his goal. God doesn't care for you. God is good to others, but he's not good to you. God has left you alone in your misery. Your suffering means that God is treating you harshly and punishing you for your sin and so on and so on. Now, even when we know, even when God does discipline us for our sins, and he does, we know the reason why is so that we may share in his holiness and his grace so we may be stronger in the faith, never to destroy his children, always to build them up and to drive out the sin that's in their life so they can be more holy and more godly and more used by the Holy Spirit. So you need to know who God is in his unchanging nature, who, what God has done and what he will accomplish by himself on your behalf if you are a child of God, that God whose nature is altogether gracious and whose dealings with us altogether kind, that God called you to belong to Jesus Christ, the same God also called you to share in his eternal glory. That's what the passage says. Eternal marks the contrast between their suffering, which is only temporary, and their vindication, which will last for all time. A short little suffering for an eternity of spending time with God in goodness and grace. The comparison falls apart if you try to say that everything happens here on earth. See, God himself called you in Jesus Christ 
which means that Christians are in union with Christ. It actually indicates the means by which God's eternal glory is shared, and that is in union with Christ. For it says in our text right here that after you have suffered for a while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself do something. All right, so God has called you. And as God the Father pursues us in his grace, God brings people to himself in all kinds of different ways, yet the same message, but different ways. When we cry out to God for salvation, it's because he first called out to us. So God pursues, God seeks, and God finds us. That's what he does. I often tell people in my testimony, you know, when I heard the gospel for the first, for the third time, one thing about what was going on in my mind at that time is I wasn't looking for God. But when I found out, when I trusted Christ, he was looking for me. And so, so that was really overwhelming to me to say that I thought I didn't need anything. I thought I was doing fine. Uh, and yet God was looking out for me. And so this passage of Scripture comes to our mind that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So it's the Father who has called us to salvation through Christ, and that no one can be saved and be made right with God unless they do come to Jesus Christ. So in saying all that, I come full circle again back to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 10, which really we address the last but not the least of the ways to resist the adversary. In other words, to resist your adversary in the faithfulness of God's promises. Stand your ground knowing God faithfully keeps his promises that our hope stands ultimately in his strength and his reliability. Not our hold on him, but his hold on us. He keeps us. He saves and keeps us. However, before I go any further, believing a promise that is still yet future is hard especially during times of difficulty and trial. So there's a fundamental question that needs to be raised and wrestled with. It's this. In this world, in this world, what's better, faith or sight? Think about that for a minute. Most would answer the question, I think sight is better. Because I would be able to see with my own eyes. But Jesus warned people who wanted a sign. He warned them about just seeing. Matter of fact, people saw Jesus and still rejected him. They saw the power and the miracles and still rejected him. So people still say, I think sight's better. Because I'll, I'll be able to see. Let me see it. Then I'll be convinced. But just believing your senses alone have some serious weaknesses with it. 
Sight is limited, believe it or not. It can only see one direction. You can't, looking at your house from the front, see the back of the house. You cannot see the sides of the house. Now, somebody can tell you, come alongside of you and say, you know what, your house actually has sides and has a back. Well, how do I know that? Maybe it's just the front. Until I see it with my eyes, I usually don't believe it. So sight is limited. It can only see in one direction. Sight looks at evidences, former opinions, and then draws conclusions. Just observable realities. No further. More importantly, sight cannot make sense of the world. Can you make sense of suffering? Can you make sense of wars? Just by looking? Can you make sense of just needless injustices in this world? We really can't make sense of it just by looking and observing. So sight can't make sense of the world, and the reason why is because it must exclude the invisible God from the picture. So to answer the question from a biblical perspective, faith is better than sight. Why? Because faith can look around corners. It can look further than sight. Faith sees the invisible power of God. Faith sees beyond the difficulties and counts on God. Faith does not operate just on what it perceives, whether good or evil, but on the basis of who God is and what God is doing and that which what God is, says he's going to do. So while we're in this world, if it is true that the things that are unseen are more permanent than the things that are seen, then in the end, if we rely solely on sight, Sight would be discouraged over and over again because I'll never see what I really want to see. That's why Hebrews says if you want to, faith is believing God is. You believe who he is and what he said. Once I believe God is and what God's doing, then it moves me to a place that I could never be moved just by sight. Now, I want you to take your Bibles for a minute and turn to Habakkuk. Now, you may say, where is that? Well, that's in the Minor Prophets. But go and look it up. Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse number 4. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because this is a well-known passage in the Bible. It's mentioned, actually, several other places besides here because it's such an important principle in the Christian life. Matter of fact, you cannot live the Christian life without this principle. It cannot be done. So this Old Testament minor prophet, now minor doesn't mean less significant, it just means smaller than the bigger prophets. And this well-known passage, look what it says. It says, Behold, as for the proud one, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, 
Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, once the prophet Habakkuk understood himself, the biblical principle of living by faith, his response was to worship God. Now, I'm, I'm saying that in this way. His response wasn't, Lord, you didn't answer my question, why? Once he understood that a righteous man learns to live by faith, his faith, in the true and living God, because God can be trusted. So the prophet asked the question. God gives his promises The prophet Habakkuk is called to faith in God's promises, and in turn, he gives one of the greatest statements of faith found in the Word of God. Now, look over to chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Notice what it says here. It says this, Habakkuk 3, verse 17 and 18, it says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. Now, brethren, if that was going on, you know know what it's saying there? Nothing's going right. How can I have faith in God when nothing going, is going right? That's, that's what sight does. Now look what faith does. Look at verse number 19, 18. It says, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Boy, that is an odd ending. But it's not odd if you understand that he is talking about, he's talking about the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, he understood it. So here is what it means that the just shall live by faith. If everything goes wrong and all hell breaks loose, I will, as a believer, operate on the basis of faith, not sight. I will trust in your character. I will trust in your work. I will trust in your promises, and I will do it with joy that causes me to worship you if nothing's going right. See, that's what faith does. Because faith is not about this moment or this this immediate circumstances. Faith is about what God is doing over here also. See, sight only looks right here, right in front of us, around us, but it cannot see into the future unless... They believe the promises of God by faith. See, that is the difference between just living and living by faith. Now, 600 years later, Jerusalem, the same city Habakkuk had once lamented over the evil around him, which the Babylonians, of course, later destroyed, had been rebuilt just as God had promised. By the time Jesus of Jesus' birth, Jerusalem was a bustling city, 
now under the thumb of the Roman Empire, not much different than the Babylonian Empire. And the only difference, the timing was ripe for God's plan to burst on the scene. When faith looks at the cross, it sees more than terrible evil. Faith sees God at work and believes his promise. Faith sees this is why Christ came into the world. Faith reckons that if God has said in Christ that he will save his people from his from their sins, then that is exactly what he will do. And that's what exactly what he has done. He will accomplish it by means of the perfect life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God's plan of the greater exodus, that when someone comes to Christ, they're delivered from eternal condemnation, is focused in on the cross. And it's centered in on the person of Jesus Christ, period. So then, here's the bottom line. The bottom line is this. In this world, what is better? Faith is better than sight. Faith will bring me right to the end of my life, trusting in the promises of God, knowing that in the character of God, what he has done in the past he has accomplished, and what he said he will do in the future will happen, and I will be there to experience it. And then when I'm in his presence, I will have sight. I will see him as he is, right? Even now, God is limited a bit to our understanding, but I will see him as he is. That is the hope that we have, that no one can take away. Satan cannot rob that from us. That's something we have forever. It was also the Apostle Paul who took the words of the prophet Habakkuk, and what did he he say in Romans chapter 1? Right in the first chapter. Look what he says here. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written But the righteous, the righteous man shall live by faith. See, the principle hasn't changed. It's still the same. The righteous have always lived by faith. God's people have always operated on the basis of faith in God's word and God's character. And it will be so until Christ returns. It will be that way. So we must learn to live that way. When we suffer When we go through trials, when we engage in spiritual warfare, the Lord will use it to strengthen our faith and bolster our faith to know that God himself will be our protector, our defender, our deliverer, that his promises will enable us to resist the enemy, learning and leaning on the promises of God in faith and by faith. So if God himself called you to share in his eternal glory, God promises to perform four actions on behalf of all true believers on the day of their vindication. Four future verbs back in 1 Peter. Let's turn about 1 Peter so I can close this message. I said all that to establish what I'm going to say right here and not spend a whole lot of time on this. 
here because it's, it's self-evident now that I've said those things. So if God himself called you to share his eternal glory, God's promises to perform, he will promise to perform four actions on behalf of all believers on the day of their vindication, four future active verbs, all relating in meaning and marked in a very significant, significant way that God cares for his people. Notice what it says in verse 10. It says at the end of the verse, will himself. God is personally responsible for what he says here. He will himself perfect. Now, here they are. That God, while we're resisting, promises us four things. That he will outfit us. In other words, it says here in verse 10, he will perfect you. The, prom- the first promise given to suffering saints that God will himself outfit us. Perfect is really literally restore or denotes the idea of putting something in order or mending something that has been torn or setting right something that has been broken or reestablishing something that has been turned upside down. So the word could be used in a medical sense to be setting a bone, a broken bone. Another way is mentioned in this way, a fisherman mending their nets. Same word used in Mark 119. It also is used of repairing and recommissioning a damaged ship. So in other words, God will himself renew your strength and repair the damage done by your suffering and by your falterings and your stumblings and make you fit for service, and for his presence and glory. God will fix everything, in other words, for you again. He says, I promise to do that. Think of it like this, that God is sculpting us, chipping away at everything that does not look like a Christian. Suffering leads us to make God our all and prepare us for glory. That's what it does. So God is there doing that. Second thing he is doing is he is... It says here, he will confirm us. That him, it says, will himself confirm you, the second promise, which means to strengthen, to make firm, to establish, to fix, again, to set. These are very similar things. That's why some people say this is really one promise with four things to it. It denotes the action of God in keeping Christians firm and steady in their faith. So as I walk by faith, God is keeping me in the faith to make unyielding as to hold the faith that we have been given by the word of God. In other words, you will not be like a twig in the wind. You will be like a mighty oak. You shall not be shaken by alarms or by tripwires or by the flaming darts of the enemy. You will stand firm. Why? Because God is helping you do that. The next thing he promises is that God will strengthen us. The third promise here is it means to make strong, simple. It occurs, this word actually occurs only here in the whole New Testament, and it denotes the idea of God giving them strength to bear all their suffering without wavering again in their faith. 
God causes you to be psychologically, mentally balanced and spiritually strong in your will, in your thoughts, in your convictions. He's, he's enabling you to do that. And then, of course, the last thing, he brings it all together, is that God will establish us. He promises to establish us, establish firmly, to make a solid foundation that will not cave in. In other words, our life is not built on the sand, where when the wind comes and the waves come, it blows our house down and our life out to sea. Our life is built on a strong foundation where when the winds come and the waves come, nothing gets knocked off its foundation. Why? Because God has established you. He's established you. God makes sure that you are firmly rooted in a strong foundation of trust and confidence in him and causes you not to be moved at all in your faith in Christ. To be so equipped is what is very much needed now, not just after suffering, but while you're going through it. So God's equipping you will be done for the little time of suffering. And then he tells us here, then it will be a a time where you'll be ready for your eternal inheritance, your eternal glory while you're with God. Of course, Habakkuk broke broke out in worship. And what do you think Peter does? Look at verse 11. This is what he does. He breaks out in doxology and worship. You can't get any more doxological than this. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's nothing else you can say after that. You understand? All you can do is bow and worship God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you you have done this. I don't have to keep the, the plate spinning. You do it for me. And you yourself are involved very intimately in my life to take me from point A to B right into your presence. And see, that is what the scripture teaches us. So we can go out into that world and we can live our life not based on sight, but based on faith in him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the word of God. It is I must admit, a tremendous inspiration to be able to read the words of Scripture and be encouraged by them in this day in which we live, Lord. That, Lord, you answered the question why of suffering by reminding us of who you are and what your promises are. And so I thank you, Lord, that you are the God who who will do what you say you're going to do. And we can trust you fully. You're not going to take a left turn on us. You're not going to leave us in the dust or in the dark. But you're going to keep us firmly established upon what you have done. And so I pray, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be people who genuinely live by faith. Because this is what all the saints have done. And they have made it. And now they're in your presence, those who have died and us who are still here on earth, Lord, someday will be in your presence. But we are in your presence anyway, but I mean, Lord, as long as we're in this body, 
We have to live by faith. Someday we'll see you, and that's going to be a glorious day, and we look forward to that day, Lord. So I pray, Lord, enable us by these passages of Scripture to be encouraged to press on, to press on no matter what, and live our life hard mind and soul for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this in your great name. Amen.